Alright, ready, ready? Perfect. Hello everyone and welcome to the Dear John Stories. Uh, this is a podcast being recorded by me, uh, my name's Micah, and this is Eric. Hello. That was Eric. <laughs> we're going to be doing a podcast, it's going to have stories in it, and then we're going to talk about the stories. We might analyse them, we may just make up new stories, who knows, but it'll be full of stories. And these stories are being done because my dad's in hospital for a long period of time. We've been wanting to do podcasting and talking for a while, you know, talk, record Mostly it. Mostly we just do the talking part, so it's nice to... Yeah, it's nice to record it. And like, yeah, I, so I want to record this for my dad so he's got something to listen to each week while he's holed up in hospital for like six months, immobile and legally blind and not having the best time. So hopefully this is, these will give him something to at least think about, if not make him happy. Uh, he can certainly just send me like editing critiques as well. If he does that, we'll read those out. He can tell me how to make my stories better or funnier. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to gonna read uh, an original story, which is called Slow Cooked on One Leg. And that's written by me. And uh, I'm going to read one of my favorite short stories, which is The Arrival of Black Man's Warbler by A.A. Milne. Slow Cooked on One Leg Eleven months ago, Phil Stanley had discovered that the most delicious thing in the world to eat was unquestionably flamingos, as long as they were prepared and eaten in an exact secret manner. That manner had remained a secret for almost an entire year. However, tonight, on The Late Show, Phil Stanley's apprentice chef, at the instructions of Chef Stanley, was going to reveal all the secrets to the entire world. Murmurings about the incredible dish first began in the culinary world, moved online, spread to celebrity and gossip circles, and were finally heavily reported in all the mainstream news. By then, everybody was aware of the flamingo flavour phenomena, as only the gaudiest outlets called it. But beyond the idea of it being the most delicious thing in the world, nothing else about the dish was known. People had eaten flamingo before, all over the globe, but no one had ever gushed praise about it like this before. Like every dining trend, this one had its copiers and mimickers, along with its praises and detractors. Places started popping up well before anyone knew any details, selling their version of the whole thing, which were more or less always chicken with some sort of prawn glaze or paste on it. Some of them even added a giant leg bone to make it look authentic. Trendy vegan venues were quick to invent their faux version, and gourmet burger joints tried to make it cheap and easy to pick up. However, none of them tasted anywhere near the way that anyone lucky enough to try Phil's acclaimed dish described. Outstanding, the greatest sensation my body has felt, said one anonymous taster, rumoured to be a sex symbol and decadent of the highest order. I would kill for another morsel of this long-legged feast, said another. Everyone who managed to try the dish gushed praise, either wistfully or with open-mouthed salivic fervour. That is, if they were able to speak. More than one lucky eater, when questioned, simply blubbered and cried with a look of pure joy on their face and had to go lie down without any further questioning possible. The first big problem was supply. There are only so many flamingos in the world and only one species has the right qualities to be prepared in the Phil Stanley method. The James's flamingo, which is only found in certain parts of the Americas. In most of those countries, it is a protected species. But there were known to be certain areas where if you knew the right people and greased the right palms, you could get away with poaching a bird or two and attempting to cook it to perfection. The next big problem was that nobody had been able to figure out exactly what the Phil Stanley method entails. Nearly a year since the whispers first started and rumours began flowing of the previously unknown chef's miraculous discovery, and still no pictures had leaked of a meal before or after consumption. 
No one had let slip even a hint of what sort of preparation occurred, if there were sides served with it, what wine should accompany it, or even what cooking method was best. Of course, all the experts in the world had weighed in, some hypothetically, some by making trips to the Americas and doing their best to procure and prepare a meal out of the strange pink birds, but none of them could get it right. The food historians pointed out that ancient Romans long ago considered the flamingo tongue a delicacy, but they were assured by Chef Stanley that his method required the bird to be served whole. Many articles were written hypothesising about herbs and spices, rubs and sauces, steaming and frying, barbecuing and poaching. But every time someone tried to claim any sort of success or inspiration, Chef Stanley would issue a response calmly stating the same message over and over again. Not even close. The only reason anyone knew that the James's flamingo was the only correct species was because when news first leaked of his discovery and the hype behind it grew, people all over the world started chasing down any old flamingo they could find and just having a go at cooking them any way they felt practical. Phil felt it best to at least give that information to help stem any population crisis among the suddenly popular birds. And of course, as soon as this information came out, a number of investors all over the world did what they had to to get a breeding pair or two of Jameses and start up a farming program. There was at least one group who was happy and didn't care what the recipe was, the board of the executives at Cato Manufacturing, who made the wise decision in 2010 of purchasing the copyrights and plastic moulds to produce Don Featherstone's iconic pink plastic flamingo lawn ornaments. Somehow, they were able to use a team of lawyers to leverage this into manufacturing rights to just about anything that looked like a flamingo or had a picture of one on it. With flamingo mania in full swing, they were raking it in. The Miami Flamingos, an esports team specialising in Counter-Strike, were initially happy until the memes started rolling their way. Still, the whole world waited eagerly for any snippet of news about the wonder meal prepared from the colourful birds. Phil had kept his kitchen team incredibly small, just him, his apprentice and two assistants, one of whom appeared to be partially deaf, and none of them had agreed to any interviews or accepted any of the numerous bribes sent their way to talk. It wasn't just anyone who could get a chance to try the dish for themselves either. It was by tender or invitation only. And when the tender was signed off on or the invitation sent out, the guests would have to agree that they would not say a word about the dish that could give any secret away or face legal action that would effectively destroy them. So far, by the internet's best calculations, only 43 people had tried the dish and all of them, it seems, were willing to keep their vow of secrecy. Of the 43 fortunate customers, the identities of only four were known for certain. Chef Phil Stanley, his two assistants, and a woman named Ruth Ettleton from Bendigo, Australia, who had been chosen at random to win a prize while filling in an online survey. Ruth's prize was an all-expenses-paid trip to a mystery location in South America where she was invited to both try the flamingo dish and take on the job of spokesperson. Ruth boarded a flight from Melbourne, Australia to LA, when she arrived, she was met by an army of reporters and a team of minders. Ruth was shuffled onto a private jet and given a lengthy amount of paperwork to go through and sign. She was blindfolded and the plane made several stops before she was led off into a car, driven to a large house, taken inside and had the blindfold removed. She met Chef Stanley and his team, spent the better part of the evening at the house where she tried the extraordinary dish and was driven back to the plane and dropped back in L.A., after arriving in LA, Ruth announced and gave exactly one succinct press conference before flying back to Australia, assuming a false identity and going into hiding. I can confirm that the flamingo dish I was served was the most exquisitely delicious meal I have ever eaten. 
I know that I will never eat anything that tastes so glorious again. The way this meal makes you feel is beyond my ability to explain properly. It's like you are tasting with your entire being, and there are taste buds that exist outside yourself being activated and overwhelmed. I have to go home now and think about it. These were the last words anyone from the media heard Ruth say ever again. And that was it for 11 months. No recipes, no hints, no photos, only not even close. Any other information from the chef or other descriptions from those fortunate enough to try the flamingo for themselves were released anonymously and through Chef Stanley's own agent. Until one day, out of the blue, Phil Stanley's apprentice, Robert, turned up with a letter explaining that with Chef Stanley's blessing and specific instruction, all would be revealed on The Late Show. Robert was sweating in his chef's robes. He'd never been on television before, and he didn't want to be on now, but he was an apprentice and it was important to follow instructions and do what was asked of you as an apprentice. He was nervous and he knew everyone else knew he was nervous. Don't worry, the petty production assistant had assured him. Everyone is so excited to finally get this recipe. They're not going to care how you look or sound. Well, I tell you, this is going to be one special show. Everyone should get along. In fact, as a special gift to all our audience in tonight, we've got double passes for you. Just look under your chairs. There should be an envelope. Yeah, that's the one. All right, after the break, the moment we've all been waiting for. The secret to the most delicious dish this world has ever seen. Right after these messages. Robert was prepped and ready to walk out when he was told to. He knew to wave to the cameras and audience and shake hands with the host and then take his seat and wait to be spoken to. Just as the band started up and the host started talking, Robert felt a tap on his shoulder. It was Phil. I can't let you go out there and do this. Oh, thank God, I was so nervous. I need you to come out with me, though. It's important. I've let them know I'm here, and they're just letting the host know now. In a surprising turn of events, please welcome, for the first of what I am sure is to be many appearances on television, not just The Apprentice, but the man himself, the inventor of this culinary phenomena that we are all aching to hear about, Chef Phil Stanley! With that, they begin the formalities, shaking hands, sipping from coffee cups, and saying hellos. All right, thank you. I guess it's time. Before I begin, I just want everyone here to know that we've been very selective with who we have allowed in on our preparation method and consumption of this extraordinary dish. So selective that even my apprentice of three years, Robert here, has not tried the dish himself. Have you, Robert? Nope. Nor has he even participated in the preparation of anything other than the side dishes, which never got touched by any of the attendees after they had tasted the main attraction. Oh, wow, that's tough, real tough. You going to try it after this, though, boy? Bet you can't wait. Nope. Ha <laughs> sure, sure. This is a dish that tastes like no other and needs to be prepared like no other. To prepare a James's flamingo to make it taste beyond anything in this world, the person who is going to eat it has to slaughter it. There is a slightly shocked silence in the studio and in houses and kitchens all over the globe. Some chefs with flamingo corpses plucked and gutted in front of them shrug and look at the huge assortment of ingredients they have ready in front of them. What do you mean? Is it a cultural thing? No, it's something in the chemicals, between the bird and its slaughterer. You mean the person really has to kill the thing themselves? Yes. Well, I guess if it tastes as good as people say, there's going to be a whole lot more people, only they can't just kill it. First of all, they have to break its legs. While it's alive. Now the silence is complete, and the host is looking at his producer. After they break its legs, they have to rip its wings apart. The order is important. Next, they have to push both its eyeballs into its sockets until they burst at the same time. 
Following this, they have to macerate the bird's beak in their mouth until it becomes supple. They need to rip out its tongue with their teeth at this point. Finally, they have to stab their meal in the sex organs and set it on fire. When the bird drops dead, scrape away any remaining feathers, add a dash of salt, and it's ready to eat. If you miss any of these steps, it will taste just like a tough, fishy fowl. If you follow them all exactly, you will experience a euphoria like none you have ever felt. I believe there must be something in existence to trigger this for every sense. This is the one for taste. To confirm these claims, I've brought video of three of the most famous chefs in the world who invited to try eating flamingo this way. If you could show the clips now. The stunned host motions the clips to play. The three chefs confirm they tried the method mentioned and that the result was extraordinary. Each of them explains they were also invited to try any variation they wished to prove the method was the only one possible, and each came to the same conclusion. It was perfect. I have also brought some clips of all the celebrities. <coughs> I have also brought some clips of all the celebrities, politicians, businessmen, and other people who have tried the dish, explaining their euphoria and delight after their tasting. Roll them if you would. For close to 10 minutes, faces rolled across the stream. Each one more famous and powerful than the next, and each one outdoing themselves in their explanations of the euphoric, divine, delightful, overwhelming, etc., etc., feelings that the food gave them. The world was stunned. The host was stunned. The audience was stunned. I have not known how to share this secret with the world. I tried to keep it under wraps, but it was impossible to tell no one after my first bite, after my first preparation. I don't know what the world will do with this information now, but that's it. That's the recipe. Silence. Everyone is contemplating. Hold on a minute, a lady in the audience yells and a camera turns and frames her face. How the hell did you know that was going to make the flamingo taste delicious the first time you did it? You're nothing but a sicko. You ought to be arrested. And then the first chair flew straight out of the audience towards Chef Stanley's head. Phil Stanley was taken into custody that night, as much for his own safety as to work out if any charges would be laid. After careful in investigation, he was extradited to Peru to be charged with a number of offences. Robert the Apprentice was seen as somewhat of a victim and put into witness protection and given a new identity and new job. Many of the people shown to have participated through the video clips went into hiding. Some were killed, others claimed to have been set up. The US government set about testing the culinary phenomena and came to the conclusion that while the method worked and the end result was indeed something of a miracle, it would be banned in their country due to the cruel nature of the preparation. Almost every other nation followed suit. Of course, none of the flamingo farms that had opened up closed down. <laughs> Great story. What? My question is, is, uh, why flamingos? Why, why did you choose that as your kind of, your motif for? Look, it's just one of those things where you get inspiration that strikes. And that was the, I like the idea that came to me was somebody finding out that flamingos are delicious mm. and you know, just they're, they're such a funny looking bird already. They're one that we don't like most people don't know very much about, like, mm. uh, cause they're not around us mm. that much. I mean, I'm well, maybe the South Americans that will listen to this and be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but, um, but also the fact that you never eat flamingos, like, mm. you know, they're not on a menu anywhere. Mm. Uh, and so I was like, why not? And then I looked it up and it's because they don't taste very good. Yeah. They taste like fish, right? Because yeah. But they... like, but not even fish, just like this kind of gross fishy taste on yeah. top of a very tough fowl. Yeah. 
you know. So it's almost kind of this exoticism that's that's carried in the idea of what a flamingo is, being this kind of bird of paradise, and then the reality of it just being a terrible kind of meal. Yeah, like, I guess that's how they survive, by not being delicious. Is that how they survive? <laughs> well, I don't know, because they just stand on one leg in water. They seem like pretty easy prey to me, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Like... Yeah, I mean, there's maybe even something there as well, because they, they're one of those kind of mass group animals, right? So, which is a, which is a defensive behavior for them. So, yeah, there's something there too with, with the way that, um, the hysteria kind of carries over through the masses, maybe is mirrored in, in something the way that, you know, the, the flamingo exists in its own kind of mass. And then maybe something that you touch on earlier, where you're talking about, we tried every other flamingo, but it's this one specific kind of flamingo that it only works with. Yeah, well, it's funny. There's a lot in there, like, especially about the idea of, like, meat-eating and that kind of mm. thing. But, like, if anyone knows me, I'm, I'm an omnivore, uh, <laughs> I, you know. Uh, but I do feel the, the pressure of should I be doing it still. Mm. And so it is something that I, you know, think about. So that obviously came out in the story as well. Mm. There's, I mean, there's, it seems like there's so many layers of psychology with the with very little or very sparse kind of character development that there's still there's still these kinds of really you know the protagonist i guess being either the apprentice chef or or the the actual chef or maybe it's the recipe i don't know like what well i'll doing. tell you what i think really the only the only characters that really exist in the story are the flamingos mm. and uh, the person reading it because the person reading it i feel what what happens the what i hoped was that most of it is them kind of feeling this idea of lust for this food and yeah. like, why is it so delicious? Mm-hmm. And, and the mystery of that, that's why the, the re- like even the chef himself is, is almost a non-character. Mm. There's a, there's the characters in a, a, a cliches, mm. you know, they're not really, they're not really full characters because it was about the situation more than it was about characters. Mm. And, and really like, like I said, it was a, one of those stories, like I haven't edited it, like mm. there's stuff to be done to it. But, uh, you know, just wanted to record it. Mm. You know, people can have a listen. Um, and, and really the two things that, like, were the inspiration were the idea of flamingos being the most delicious thing ever, like, <laughs> which is just funny to me. Objectively funny, yeah. Sure. And, then, and then the last line, which was just, uh, of course, none of the flamingo farms that opened up closed down. They yeah, were the sure. two first yeah. things I had. There's something also sort of, like, uh, quite, for me, sinister every time I do some research into luxury consumption items. And, and especially around food, you know, the idea of a luxury item is that it's, it's rare or it's a treat or something like that. But to make that on a mass scale, it always seems like there has to be some kind of destructive process that it goes through or that it affects. Is that something that you're thinking about? That's well? certainly in yeah. there. Like that's in there. But I also, you know, thinking about the celebrity chef culture and the mm-hmm. home cooking thing that, that's going now. Like I, I, I love the idea that people were waiting to work out how to make this food themselves. Mm. And it turns out they actually have to make it themselves, but they have to do this like, just like just completely perverted act to, to do it. You know, it's, it's Roman shit. Um, there, you know, which it's funny. The only, the only instances I could find of people like really talking about flamingos as a culinary thing were that in ancient Rome, flamingo tongues were eaten, you know, that's in the story as well. And, and I love that because that's like the opposite end of decadence where it's like, we just kill a bird for its tongue, like this yeah. tiny tongue. And really, you know that that tongue, like they don't even care what no. it tastes like. It's no. just because you're poor, you can't have it. Yeah. I'm rich, I can have a yeah, flamingo absolutely. tongue. Yeah, And I wonder as well if that's there's an element of domination also, not just socially when you're saying this is an item that 
I can afford to waste the entire bird just to have this non oh yeah non thing. You know, like socially, there is an aspect of domination there just to establish that class uh, hierarchy. Oh, and domination of the bird. But of the bird, yeah, also, you know. Um, maybe that's where, like, that kind of fetishization also comes in of this really... Like, that's a very bodily process that you're connecting <laughs> your body with this thing that you're about to consume. And, like, the act of killing and preparing it also seems a little bit psychosexual to me, a little bit, with the uh, macerating its beak with, with your mouth. And, I mean, is that... Well, you can draw the psychosexual thing, you know, but sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, for me, it was more about, like, that idea just was just pushing the bounds as far as you could go, as far as I could go with the idea that somebody had to had to make this meal happen themselves. And not only did they have to slaughter it, but they had to torture it. Yeah. And, like, and that is very much about making people be conscious of what they're eating and yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, and I, I think also, you know, this idea of uh, selective kind of uh, indignity is uh, really funny in that last little scene where it just takes one person to break and throw that first chair and then <laughs> it's, it's like all of your guilt can escape you through your projection onto the protagonist, right? Um, who, you know, was it seemingly kind of upfront about everything, had laid all that groundwork and, you know, had these testimonials from all these other people of authority. And yet that's, uh, as soon as that first chair goes, you know, it's crucifixion time. Well, that's the, that's the one thing with the character development thing. The one thing I tried to have in it, and I don't know how well it stands out. That's the one thing I was, biggest thing I was thinking about trying to change is that in my mind, that chef, what happened was he However, he stumbled on that idea. Like that's my fa- that's my fa- that, that's hilarious to me. Like, how did he get that idea? Is this guy just messed up? Yeah. Like, and and the answer is probably yeah, that guy's messed up. And then this happened. Yeah. Um. But I I I feel like he felt an overwhelming guilt, mm. and he wasn't happy with it being mm. the thing. But he felt also this was such an amazing thing that he couldn't not show people, and he couldn't not have it be a thing. And that he kept a lid on it and only had these people doing it because if he had to just release it to the world, he doesn't, you know, it felt too too sick to him to do that. Oh, interesting. So it's kind of this, like, uh, you know, self-aware psychopath who just... Yeah, like, yeah. Like, yeah. He's aware of it, but he's also like, oh, but it's so good. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like when you're at home and you order food to your house that you know is so bad. And you're no, you're gonna regret it in an hour, but it's just so good. But then that's 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 an interesting kind of uh, example because maybe to take that, and this is gonna fall down really quickly, but to take Great. that further, um, you know, would you then to alleviate your guilt, try and encourage other people to do that, to implicate them, and then well, that's what around? he did. Yeah, you can see that. That's yeah. he took down all these politicians and yeah. and celebrities with yeah. it. So I mean, like maybe the transparency there is in the strategy because it's not. That's not a true guilt to me. It's almost this like escapist kind of uh, a, a way of dealing with that guilt, where you just. Oh, like, I think that could be true guilt as well, but I think it could, there's also a survival mechanism in there. You oh know? yeah, sure, okay, yeah. I yeah. think that's why I recorded everything, you know. <laughs> but uh, now I'm speculating on a character that I created. That's hilarious. I, yeah. So what? Maybe maybe what I would like to also ask you is, um, do you feel implicated thinking? knowing that this came from your mind. Yeah, I had some people ask me, like, what kind of a sicko are you? (laughs) And, like, I I think that's a fair question because, like, it's pretty nasty, that little paragraph of of how to prepare the bird. Like, it's nasty. But 
I, I made it nasty on purpose and I made it nasty knowing it would be shocking. So it's not like I'm some guy sitting down writing my diary and then going, what do you mean that's weird sure. when people read it? Yeah. Uh, I think I think it's perfectly fine to get into the minds of, of somebody and get into that mindset and, and be able to create that and play around with those mm. ideas. You know, I think the world would be a better place if the only place people mutilated animals was in a story. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. I reckon I, we can leave that one there. Yeah. On, on good good point to end on, like mutilation of animals and on to the next thing. Yeah, well, the next one's about, the next story is about animals as well. It's actually another one about birds. Uh, I'm going to read one of my favourite old short stories. Uh, I've told you about this one before, The Arrival of Black Man's Warbler. It's by A.A. A. Milne, the guy that wrote Winnie the Pooh. Mm. Uh, I just really like this story a lot. And I know you haven't read it, so... No, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm hoping you have to edit laughter out, because <laughs> I think it's funny. I'll try and stifle my laughter. We'll see how it goes. The Arrival of Black Man's Warbler. I just want to warn you that I might feel tempted to slip into bad English accents during this, so we'll just... (laughs) Hopefully not. Hopefully I'll just read it nicely. Anyway, let's start again. The Arrival of Black Man's Warbler by A.A. Milne. I am become an authority on birds. It happened this way. Oh, I've got to start again already. That's one of my favourite opening lines of a story here. Anyway, okay, let's go. Try again. The Arrival of Black Man's Warbler by A.A. Milne. I am become an authority on birds. It happened in this way. The other day we heard the cuckoo in Hampshire. The next morning the papers announced that the cuckoo had been heard in Devonshire, possibly a different one, but in no way superior to ours except in the matter of its press agent. Well, everybody in the house said... Did you hear the cuckoo? To everybody else, until I began to get rather tired of it, and having told everybody several times that I had heard it, I tried to make the conversation more interesting. So after my tenth, yes, I added quite casually, but I haven't heard the tufted pippet yet. It's funny why it should be so late this year. Is that the same as the tree pippet? said my hostess, who seemed to know more about birds than I had hoped. (laughs) Oh no, I said quickly. What's the difference exactly? Well, one is tufted, I said, doing my best, and the other uh, climbs trees. Oh, I see. And of course the eggs are more speckled, I added, gradually acquiring confidence. I often wish I knew more about birds, she said regretfully. You must tell us something about them now we've got you here. And all this because of one miserable cuckoo. By all means, I said wondering how long it would take to get a book about birds down from London. However, it was easier than I thought. We had tea in the garden that afternoon, and a bird of some kind struck up in the plane tree. There now, said my hostess. What's that? I listened with my head on one side. The bird said it again. That's the lesser bunting, I said hopefully. (laughs) The lesser bunting, said an earnest-looking girl. I shall always remember that. I hope she wouldn't, but I could hardly say so. (laughs) Fortunately, the bird lesser bunted again, and I seized the opportunity of playing for a safety. Or is it the Sardinian whitethroat? I wondered. They have very much the same note during the breeding session. But, of course, the eggs are more speckled, I added casually, and so on for the rest of the evening. You see how easy it is. However, the next afternoon a more unfortunate occurrence occurred. A real bird authority came to tea. 
As soon as the information leaked out, I sent up a hasty prayer for bird silence until we had got him safely out of the place, but it was not granted. Our feathered songster in the plane tree broke into his little piece. There, said my hostess, there's that bird again. She turned to me. What did you say it was? I hoped that the authority would speak first and that the others would then accept my assurance that they had misunderstood me the day before, but he was entangled at the moment in a watercress sandwich, the loose end of which was still waiting to be tucked away. I looked anxiously at the girl who had promised to remember, in case she wanted to say something, but she was also silent. Everybody was silent except that miserable bird. Well, I had to have another go at it. Black man's warbler, I said firmly. (laughs) Oh, yes, said my hostess. Black man's warbler. I shall always remember that, lied the earnest-looking girl. The authority, who was free by this time, looked at me indignantly. Nonsense, he said. It's the chiff-chaff. Everybody else looked at me reproachfully. I was about to say that black man's warbler was the local name for the chiff-chaff in our part of Somerset when the authority spoke again. The chiff-chaff, he said to our hostess with an insufferable air of knowledge. I wasn't going to stand that. So I thought when I heard it first, I said, giving him a gentle smile. It was now the authority's turn to get the reproachful looks. <laughs> Are they very much alike? My hostess asked me, much impressed. Very much. Black man's warbler is often mistaken for the chiff-chaff, even by so-called experts. And I turned to the authority and added, have another sandwich, won't you? <laughs> Particularly so, of course, during the breeding season. It is true that the eggs are more speckled, but... Bless my soul, said the authority, but it was easy to see that he was shaken. I should think I know a chiff-chaff when I hear one. Ah, but do you know a black man's warbler? One doesn't often hear them in this country. Now, in Algiers, the bird said, chiff-chaff, again, with an almost indecent plainness of speech. There you are, I said triumphantly. Listen, and I held up a finger. You notice the difference? Obviously, a black man's warbler. Everybody looked at the authority. He was wondering how long it would take to get a book about birds down from London (laughs) and deciding that it couldn't be done that afternoon. Meanwhile, he did not dare to repudiate me. For all he had caught of our mumbled introduction, I might have been Blackman myself. Possibly you are right, he said reluctantly. Another bird said, Chiff-chaff, from another tree, and I thought it wise to be generous. There, I said. Now that was a chiff-chaff. The earnest-looking girl remarked, silly creature, that it sounded just like the other one, but no one took any notice of her. They were all busy admiring me. Of course, I mustn't meet the authority again, because you may be pretty sure that when he got back to his books, he looked up Black Man's Warbler and found that there was no such animal. But if you mix in the right society and only see the wrong people once, it is really quite easy to be an authority on birds, or, I imagine, on anything else. (laughs) God, it makes me just think about every time that I've done that, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, you pretended to be an expert. Uh, yeah. I mean, like maybe, maybe not so obviously. And I really, you know, one of the one of the big social lessons that I've I learned very early and carried with me always is never talk shit about something that you don't know. Oh, you've learned that lesson. I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and maybe also like better to ask questions and try and answer them if you don't know the whole answer, right? But I think everybody's been. <laughs> oh yeah, everyone's been in that situation. <laughs> I've definitely also been the authority. Where I've, I've gone, no. Wait a minute. Are you? Uh, are, 
especially if you're the if if you're the one that comes late to the group, you're trying to you're trying to you know negotiate that. So relatable. I yeah. should have known from Winnie the Pooh's author that this was going to be an extremely relatable story, but also so quintessentially English. Yeah, it's beautiful English, but I don't think it's it's too English. I think you could you know you can read that to anyone and they get the the jokes are funny. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, really good. Is I, is there a reason why you chose to read this after the story that you wrote? Uh, it's just a story I really like, and I couldn't find it on audiobook anywhere. And the reason we're recording this is because my dad's in uh, in hospital. He's going to be in there for like probably six months or more, uh, and he's going to be immobile. And he's actually he's legally blind, so at the moment he can't move and he can't see. Mm. So there's there's not not a whole lot for him to do. So I figured it might be nice, like to record him some stories and it gives me an opportunity just to write some stories and get mm. them out there as well. Mm. And I thought if I record something by someone who's actually good at it as well, that'd be really great for him. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a, it also seems like a quite, it's quite a kind of dad thing or maybe not even like gender specific. It's very, a very parent thing where that conversation where you just sort of blag something and you just go, yeah, then that's why the sky is blue and don't ever ask me again because that's the well, fact, right? And yeah, m- my dad has a joke he used to do with my brother and I think he might have done it with his dad actually and encourages me to do it on occasion, <laughs> uh, which is you say, say to someone, um, uh, Eric, my, my dad and I uh, actually know everything. Um, oh. Go on, ask me a question, anything. Um, why is the sky blue? Oh, that's what my dad knows. Oh, very good. <laughs> yeah, very, yeah, very yeah. good. Um, so there you go. But uh, yeah, it's funny because I, I guess my dad's a learned man, and you know he's he's got about seventeen thousand degrees. Mm. So I'm sure he's really happy with the fact that I have an RSA, and that's about <laughs> the responsible service of alcohol. That's my highest qualification. Uh, but uh, food service handling level two. I do have that. Yeah, I do level two. Yeah, good. Uh, I actually have a certificate three as well in um, retail international travel tourism. Oh, that's what is that entail? Like, how do you get that? What do you have to? Are uh, you? It's not very hard. <laughs> you just... Is that just selling stuff at the airport? I Pretty, can't... it's it's selling stuff for flight center. Right. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, which I did very badly for a while. Also, um, what's a level one food safety handling? Oh, uh, that's just like where if you know to put it in your mouth, okay. and that kind of thing. You know. <laughs> Um, but, uh, it's funny. I do find myself, I'm someone that people often go, oh, Michael know that about something. Mm. Like it happens a lot Mm. and I have to check myself from making stuff up sometimes when (laughs) I don't, when I don't know, because I do enjoy being a a wealth of knowledge. I love, I love having knowledge about stuff. Um, but I've, I've learned over the years to just like be able to go, I don't know. And my life has gotten so much better for it. Mm. Being able to say I don't know is actually one of the greatest things you can learn in life, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Having more questions than answers is, a, for me, like the best way to go through life. Well, and like, how else are you going to learn? You know, yeah. if you're continually saying, ah, oh, yeah, I know, I know, and you're not listening, you're never going to learn off other people. Although having said that, you know, if there is something really to be said about uh, the feeling that you get when you get to answer something for someone and have that discussion. And then that does build up. And as you say, you know, you being a, a wealth of, or a fountain of knowledge. Um, sometimes I do feel like I can be that person in oh, yeah. groups. Yeah, I feel um, you can be that. But what is my favorite thing is that when I became aware of that, and because I try never to lie and I hate lying, 
that I've now designated myself three very specific lies that I tell and perpetuate. That's, <laughs> that's only for my enjoyment. And because of that reputation, I guess, that I've built up, I feel like I'm getting away with them. <laughs> <laughs> and they're so inconsequential, and that's what I love the most about them. So, Do you want to tell people what the lies are? No, because I feel like that is giving... Oh, them then they'll be gone. Yeah, yeah, you know. They won't exist. No, maybe, you know, catch me on a catch me on a drunken night, maybe I'll, I'll tell you about them, but... You've already told me about uh, them. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Did I tell you all three? Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. Um... But for the listeners. <laughs> also, everyone can tell you're not six foot nine. Sorry, man. I mean, when we're sitting down, I have quite a long torso. So <laughs> for, for most of the night, I can get away with that lie. Yeah, yeah. You, you often are the last to leave a party. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely on purpose. <laughs> that's lie number two. <laughs> that's not one of his lies. <laughs> I, I think the way I felt the story is connected to that they're both humorous and that they both, I like the, I like the, the, the last line of, of both of them. They both seem to, yeah. I feel like, uh, I feel like that was another one where I think he might've had that last line in, in mind when he was writing the rest of the story. That, that first line is killer. Yeah. Well, the first and last line, are, are, you know, cyclical kind of thing. Mm. And that, that opening line is, is one of my favorite opening lines in any story I've ever read. So today I am become an authority I, I, of birds. It, it's just. I am become an authority on birds. Right. And then it happened in this way. Like, like you want to hear, you want to hear from there. You want to hear his story. So, I mean, it's just, that gives us so much gravity, right? Like that's, that's the, I am become death is also what Oppenheimer said at the nuclear testing. Sure. Yeah. Um, that's surely a conscious decision. I love that that gravity is given to this kind of minefield of social interaction and this kind of tense, right? Um, it is. It is quite terse all the way through. It seems. I just feel for like me. That? For me, I feel like the protagonist is really bored. It is away for a ah, weekend. Yeah. And he's like, "Well, the weekend will be ruined." Like you know. He's, oh, he's, okay. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I don't think the stakes are that high for him. Like, but maybe a little bit, you know, because you know he does mention he never wants to see the authority again and stuff. You yeah. know, but I just imagine like the I am become death the destroyer of worlds <laughs> i am become the bird authority destroyer of garden parties you know like this is <laughs> no not destroyer uh, the 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 enhancer of garden parties oh yeah okay everyone yeah. wanted to hear about the yeah. birds no this is i guess this is my cynicism coming in going this this the stakes are so high <laughs> <laughs> i also just love the way the, the thing i love in that story is how he talks about the birds making sounds and then the guy says, no, that's that's not, that's a chiff-chaff. And that's the first time you hear the bird, and the bird like is written like it's speech, and it just says uh, chiff-chaff, uh, you know? Yeah. Before that, you just the bird makes a noise, and he's like, no, it's a chiff-chaff. And then the bird goes, chiff-chaff. <laughs> I, I like, that's, that's great. I also reveal. like to imagine that that's exactly how the bird says it, just sitting in the bushes and just says it in a human voice, like, chiff-chaff. Well, my, mine's more, I imagine it exactly like this, chiff-chaff. Like, yeah, right. like just just to be annoying enough as well, like just that little bit of highness to the voice. Yeah. Um, I mean, does this remind you of any any time where you had been at loggerheads with somebody where you know you just couldn't back down, you just have to negotiate it socially within those? Not really. I think the thing, like maybe you're, what you're talking about there, the thing I think about the most is when I when I start asking people, like, or when people bring up like new age mystic beliefs things like star signs and like and they i don't bring it up generally but god damn the floodgates get open pretty quick because i don't have time for that crap you know and like 
Yeah, and then I feel like a really mean guy because it's destroying someone's belief system. Like that, I'm trying. Well, I'm not trying to do. I'm just sort of like, no, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna sit here and just agree with you. I don't agree with this. And you so know. I wonder then, maybe the next time, keeping this story in mind, maybe the star sign can be the chip chap, and you can be the expert that challenges the authority. So you could even sort of overinterpretate the star sign to the person <laughs> and say like, no, 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 no actually. When the moon is in Venus, then this. You know? How about I just continue to do what I'm trying to do and grow as a person, which is just not have those conversations <laughs> no, with <yeah>. people. <laughs> and just, like, try and just quell them as soon as they start, you know, and walk away and that kind of thing. Well, look, both are options. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's been it for today's Dear John stories. I hope anyone that's listened and enjoyed it. God, I hope John enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if you didn't, uh, please pretend you did, because I'm going to be recording like six more of these at least. So, you know, at least at the moment in his room in the hospital, he can play it as loud as he wants because his roommate's deaf. So <laughs> that's that's fine. His, his roommate's actually a deaf mute. So between them, like they've they've lost all their senses. So they just speak through touch, I guess. Is that... Well, I don't think they speak a lot. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. Feel free to hit us up and let us know what you think. Uh, give us suggestions for any stories you'd like read out as well. Um, and we'll, we'll be back in a week with some more pleasurable things for you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. 